everyone. Welcome to Zonan Canada. I'm your host, Jesse Betteridge. Uh, joining me today, uh, once again, is Pan, who is the former owner of the classic website Lilola.net and currently uh, an occasional cosplayer. Uh, Pan, thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. And uh, also joining us again is a longtime friend of the show and birthday boy, Ian Whitcomb. Uh, Ian, happy birthday and uh, thanks for coming on. Happy birthday. It's a pleasure, Jesse. Thank you. So, uh, today, we're all going to be uh, giving static monologues about the tears coming out of our eyes, uh, <laughs> because we're going to be talking about uh, Gundam Wing. This is yet another retrospective on an anime series that has had a unique cultural impact in Canada, and uh, this time we're going to be focusing on a show that is notable primarily because it marked a significant divergence point uh, between anime fandom in Canada and the United States, specifically, uh, and most Notably, this was during the height of the Pokemon craze. So if it seems like I'm hyper fixating on a specific uh, area, I mean, I guess obviously nostalgia will, would play a, a part in that due to the age range we all fall in. But um, there, there's no denying that what everything that everything that happened during that those specific few years after Pokemon launched are significantly more important than other periods, I, I would say. In any case, what happened with Gundam Wing... I would argue, set the two countries sort of in notably different directions in terms of uh, how the fandoms have been been shaped and continue to operate and function to this day. Um, so let's uh, let's jump. Let's just kind of jump into it. Uh, so Mobile Suit Gundam Wing, or if you're a stickler for a really overly literal Japanese translations, uh, also known as New Mobile Report Gundam Wing. That's a direct transliteration of the, the Japanese title Shinkido Senki Gundam Wing. Which uh, just does not work in English uh, at all, because it's still back in the era when, yeah, it's back in the era when every mecha show still had to have some obtuse kanji compound uh, in front of it. And it's like a weird combination of mobile, the, the Japanese word for mobile suit and war diary. It it doesn't work, so that's why they don't use it. But uh, yes, Mobile Suit Gundam Wing uh, first aired in Japan in 1995. It is one of the alternate universe Gundam series that is not set in the original Universal Century timeline that the older shows were set in. Um, and like all those shows, it is an attempt at reimagining the basic idea of uh, giant robots in a real war situation uh, involving space colony. Uh, it's notable for a lot of things, specifically in the Western fandom, and I, I don't know what I don't know about you guys. Was Gundam Wing the series that first sort of exposed you to to Yaoi and BL? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No. I, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I'm not saying it all started here, but I think it it was the gateway for many people. It's certainly it's certainly how I found out about it. Um, and that's mm. that's a very important part, perhaps maybe even more significant uh, in in the Canadian context because I think it took a very central, uh, a, cent a very central role in the way that the the fandom sort of played out here. Um, yeah, and if you if you didn't learn about shipping back in like mail order zine days, uh, there's a very good chance you learned about it through Gundam Wing. For anime fans, at least, you have to remember that you know slash fans moved to the internet very very quickly. Um, and there were mailing lists, like in the 90s, there were mailing lists, there were all sorts of, like, GeoCities web pages, and not just for Gundam Wing, for, like, all sorts of fandoms uh, going back. But Gundam Wing was definitely uh, a point for anime fans, where you saw a lot of, like, slash shipping suddenly, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the, the entire way that those fandoms organize and, and or, or communicate and organize themselves online is based on the way mailing lists and... Uh, 
and, and sort of the, the covert forms of distribution that took place in the, the 80s and early 90s took place. It's the whole basis for the way fandoms interact online. It's If, you, if you've never read about that kind of stuff, uh, I, I encourage you to check it out because it's it, it's really interesting. It's it's kind of amazing. When you read about it now, it's like, how did they do this before the Internet? It's just like, well, the mm. way we do things on the Internet is kind of based on the way that they, they handle that stuff back then. Though there, there have been, like, significant changes, but yeah, for sure. I think what's interesting, though, is that I really I realized quite quickly that not only does Gundam Wing not have any even near-canonical gay characters, unlike uh, unlike a lot of other 90s anime TV shows, mm-hmm. nor, does it, nor does it even have, I would say, I would say genuine queer subtext, um, at least compared to even say seventy-nine with like Shar and Karma. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> How the female audience market attached to these shows with um, Bishonen characters and developed and developed a fan reaction to it. They developed a fan culture around it. That was something that was interesting to me. Yeah, and you're you're definitely right about uh, about Gundam having a history of, of actual subtext, and it's. Kind of interesting that it that it exploded the way that it did in in Gundam Wing, both in uh, Japan and in the West. And and from what I've gathered, it's kind of in, in happened in different ways. And to, just to sort of give an idea of the show, now I, I was hoping I could give a concise summary of what the show is about, <laughs> and that's yeah, I kind of gave up on that pretty quickly. Um, because I I wanted to just kind of talk about the story without any details of how everything got retconned later. Because the, the thing about Gundam is that you never get the full, any version of Gundam, or almost any version of Gundam, you never get the full story just by watching the show. Uh, even from the get-go, you're expected to refer to, like, supplementary materials to fill in a lot of blanks that are taking place. Because it seems like the way that these Gundam shows are written, they, they plan out a scenario, and they just kind of write the show weaving in and out of that scenario, and then it could go off the rails sometimes in, in really weird ways, which is what happened with Gundam Wing. Um, and d- details always get left out. Things always get expanded on and retconned in in supplementary text or in manga later on. That happened big time with Gundam Wing. And it's and when you go when you go back and try and piece the storyline together, uh, because you you definitely aren't really getting a fully fleshed out storyline in Gundam Wing. It's difficult to f- to figure out what was what you can actually gather from the show itself, or what you can piece together from the show itself with details you missed, and what was stuff that they went back and wrote later to to, to fill in those gaps. Just just to give a pl- a quick plot synopsis, uh, it takes place in the year after Colony 195, uh, nearly two centuries after humans uh, began migrating into space colonies in the uh, Earth Moon orbit. Decades before the series began, the United Earth Sphere Alliance uh, was formed among nations on Earth uh, in an attempt to, to minimize conflict and establish sort of a defense pact between uh, the governments of Earth and the colonies. Um, however, this actually uh, results in brutal occupation of the colonies. Uh, rebel groups, uh, which honestly never really have a coherent identity uh, in the series itself, uh, but they do, again, in the in the supplementary materials. Um, they still persisted. They organized Project Meteor, in which five highly trained teenage soldiers were sent to Earth uh, in highly advanced mobile suits known as Gundams in order to covertly sabotage Earth Sphere Alliance operations. Uh, these power structures uh, that we see in the series are controlled by a series of shadowy organizations that ultimately lead back to the Romafeller Foundation. 
a very yep. bizarrely anachronistic group of aristocrats who have been uh, pulling the political <laughs> and economic strings of affairs for like centuries. The Rockefeller Foundation organizes a coup, a coup d'état through their military wing, which is the Order of the Zodiac, known as Oz, which during the series is led by Tres Cushernada, who is a military purist who believes humanity's p- potential can only be fully unlocked through the drive and purity and sacrifice of war. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that sure is how things work in real life. Um, in real life, sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, his, uh, his antithesis is Rolina Peacecraft, who, through improbable circumstances, discovers that she is the heir to the Sank Kingdom, which is a nation founded on to- uh, principles of total pacifism, and she tries to uh, execute these, uh, these principles as its leader in a fashion that is not unlike Lisa Simpson wishing for world peace on the monkey's paw. Um, <laughs> she also uh, later becomes Queen of Earth, but we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, and she is in love with Hiro, Hiro Yui, who is one of the Gundam pilots, and he is the main character for some reason. So that's wow. kind of... <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's, uh, wow. So that's, that's kind of Gundam Wing in a nutshell, and I there's all sorts of stuff I left out, of course. I think, you did, I think you did a great job. I have a friend who jokes, like, you have to understand, when we watched that sh- the show for the first time, we were, like, 15 years old. Yeah. Like, a lot of this, like, political maneuvering went over our head, and our the big joke that my friend always told was, Gundam Wing, we don't have a Gundam idea of what's going on. Yeah. Right? Um, as an adult, like, exactly, like, watching the show again as an adult, everything, like, it all makes sense, but it also doesn't make any sense for exactly the reasons you outlined, like, the ideology in the show makes, like, no sense whatsoever. Yeah, but I feel like we're going to talk get into that later, so. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> amazed, I'm amazed, Jesse, at how that's a really concise synopsis. Yeah. Like how it has nothing to do with the first six episodes, and <laughs> you leave out, you leave out four of the five Gundam pilots. <laughs> like, yeah, well, there- you can't. Like, like the show has two streams. Like, it's got this, like, political stream and this, like, story about the pilots weaving in and out of that political stream. So it's hard to sort of give a, a concise synopsis of, like, both of those ideas without getting really convoluted. But it, it, all, it yeah. all seems sometimes that the writers are trying to force those streams together because as Absolutely. <laughs> As the as the narrator constantly points out, like through the the second quarter of the series, the the Gundam pilots are like fighting for a reason to exist in this universe, and it often feels like that's a reflection of how the writers feel about trying to make everything fit together throughout a lot of things. Because I, I don't know, I felt that the the Gundam pilots often their, their their conflicts are not always compatible with what's going on in the the, the greater situation. It, it's it's definitely a show that is going on two streams a lot of the time. Um. And in terms of the 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 plot being you know really really obtuse when you're when you're young or not used to that kind of thing, I've I've always gotten the impression with um with Gundam that a lot of the appeal for younger audiences in Japan is that kind of um that feeling of being in over your head and being into something that you know you that seems more mature than than other things you may be watching uh, and or more mature than it really is yeah. in a lot of. Yeah. I, I think that I think I, that actually resonates with me um, when I was younger and watched it. I thought this show was like the the coolest shit in the world um, when I watched it. Again, I was like 15 years old when I first watched this show, um, and you know the politics in it seemed really cool. Even the philosophy seemed like it was interesting. Uh, they some of the absurdities in the show, like Hiro Yui jumping like out of a 50 story window and landing with only a broken leg, like that seemed <laughs> cool. And like as an adult, I watch that and I'm like, what the, what? Like the like the the 
it doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, having matured, having grown up, having done a lot of self-reflection and learning a lot about the world, this, the, the politics in the show stop holding any water in a lot of ways. It feels really hollow. Um, if you want, I can elaborate on that or we can do it later. It's up to you. Know, you. you know, even the psychology of the characters, I mean, one of the big things in the show and something that's mm-hmm. very, um, very provocative for young audiences is all the discussion about suicide and sacrifice and self harm mm-hmm. and, and, and all that stuff, which is, which is new. So as young audiences, we are empathizing with these characters. But on the other hand, looking at it in hindsight, the show has, the show has no clue about what suicide means. The constant reference and, and actions towards these, these pilots, um, wanting to kill themselves, trying to commit suicide, wanting to sacrifice themselves. I mean, in the first 13 episodes, it probably happens once or twice an episode. Oh, for sure. Yeah, between between Hero self trying to self destruct his vest in the first episode, um, he tries to blow up he he tries to blow up his Gundam. I think he I think it be, between episodes one and ten, it's at least he tries to kill himself at least six times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's so, just Hero. And it's kind of it's kind of bizarre to 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 see that when you're not used to see like that's not something that you would see just casually popping up constantly in. In, in any kind of youth-oriented cartoon, especially one that was airing in the afternoon, which is not quite how it how it played out in in Canada, of course. Yeah, even in Japan for sunrise shows at the time, that was pretty strange. I, I would say, um, in hindsight, though, there's only one. I think there's only one scene in that show where I really felt that they were doing something with the idea, and that's when um, that's when Hiro goes to see Marshall Noventa's niece. Oh yeah, Sylvia, oh, yeah, Sylvia yeah. Noventa. Yes. Yeah, so I think that's that's the only time. I certainly loved that scene when I was when I was a teenager. It's aged since I've gotten older, but again, you're also dealing with the fact that the show has has no real idea of what it's talking about in terms of suicide mm-hmm. or their depression or anything like that. Yeah, and they show every single character has like um, every single character has a huge problem with self worth uh, that sort of goes like unaddressed uh they do address it a little bit as the series progresses but you know um it's portrayed as something very like respectable and cool to give yourself to a cause you know this the the colonies are being threatened well then you self-detonate and i think as a kid i thought that was actually kind of cool um it resonated with me on some level as an adult i'm almost horrified by it i just feel like almost so bad for these kids um they're fighting this war and they have so little self-worth that it's so easy for them to want to die and they're like i just want to like as an adult i have this instinct to like wrap them up in blankets and give them hugs and get them therapy uh which is a very different instinct than i had when i was when i was a youth and watching it and, and these characters and this almost like suicidal devotion actually ended up resonating with me i i think that's uh that general um sentiment that you have is what drives a lot of the alternate interpretations that we see not in just within the fandom but in how a lot of a lot of the marketing materials that we that we see the the alternate portrayals of uh of the characters in much more relaxed situations is almost kind of cathartic in a way. Mm. Yeah. The, the themes that you guys are, are mentioning, which I think are some of the, the aspects that really strongly resonated with, uh, with, with Western viewers when the show debuted, um, not only on an emotional level, but just also in terms of pure shock value. Um, and yeah. I know, I, as, as Ian mentioned, I kind of glossed over the first six episodes in, in my summary of the series, but 
it's it's really front-loaded with that kind of thing. And that might explain why YTV was kind of hesitant uh when they when they picked up this series um it did debut on cartoon network in on in march of 2000 uh, and mm-hmm. it had a lot of fanfare they they had like they cut toonami uh, which is the anime block in cartoon network of course in the united states they cut a two-minute trailer for this show that did an excellent job of just hyping up a lot of the the aspects that are appealing about the show and also explaining what gundam was and yeah. just defining it as something really different and, and 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 sort of signaling that you know this block of programming is going to go in a direction that's different from what we're used to um it's going to be dark it's going to be yeah. deep it's going to be interesting it's going to have all these like cool action scenes uh it's going to deal with like philosophy it's going to be really awesome you want to tune in mm-hmm. but that that promo wasn't heavy-handed either it wasn't no. No. straightforward it was it was honest about the show it yeah, it built it was up great. the actual political issues of the show. Yeah, in yeah. a way similar to the, the the show's own narration. Yeah, they. So it was totally sympathetic yeah. with the with the show they, itself. They understood really what. Yeah, they understood what they were getting, and they knew how to deftly sell that to people and uh, emphasize those traits, and even make them a little more palatable in the context of the block. Um, now, to, to be fair to Bandai Entertainment, they were very on the ball with getting the show on Canadian TV. Um, it, it's its premiere on YTV was in April of 2000. That was just a little, about a month and a half after it started on uh, US TV. So Bandai, Bandai Entertainment was very on the ball with getting the show up here, which is a scenario that's very difficult to envis- envision in today's environment. I think this was likely thanks to Jerry Chu, who always worked very hard at... Um, at getting exposure for things in Canada, and and uh, you know always remember Bandai Entertainment was right there when the Bionics block launched uh, uh, in 2005. So mm. when they were around, they were always swooping in uh, at, at these opportunities whenever they could. And it, since Gundam Wing is often seen as the follow-up to to DBZ in sort of the Toonami context, and that and YTV was having success. At the, after they brought that show back, uh, after running it at like 1.30 a.m. for a little while, it was a no-brainer for them to get Gundam Wing. But the thing is that they didn't license the whole series when Bandai approached them. They did something really unusual, uh, which I, I think you probably both remember, um, which is that they actually only licensed the first three episodes. Um, and yeah. they aired them back-to-back, uh, Monday, April 24th at 5.30 p.m., uh, which was uh, Dragon Ball Z's time slot, so this covert premiere was was seen by a lot of people at the time and do you did you guys catch this three episodes premiere was this your first exposure to the series yeah i I did no go ahead i didn't catch it it flew under my radar and pan yeah i i I watched it when it when it aired uh and it got me really really excited about the show um to be honest i was super excited about it and then you're when the show started actually sort of airing um, in September, I was already like on board 100%. Mm-hmm. Actually, I have I have the email that they sent out uh, promoting oh Gundam Wing right here. I did I did dig that up. Uh, mark your calendar. YTV will be airing these three episodes of Gundam Wing back to back on Monday, April 24th, 2000, from 5:30 to 7 p.m. Eastern Pacific Time. After you have seen the first three episodes of our on YTV, uh, you can take part in an interactive poll on our groovy website at www.ytv.com, where you can give us your opinion on the new show. 
From there, YTV will then decide, based on viewer response, if more episodes will find a regular place on our upcoming schedule. There will also be a special Gundam Wing section on our website starting Monday, April 17th. Check it out. So... They were in a situation, as as you know, and we've talked about this on the show before, where they were kind of baffled by this show. This is something that was like kind of handpicked, carefully curated, and uh, marketed by people like Jason DeMarco and Sean Akins at Toonami and Cartoon Network. Um, but they were, I think, they it really took YTV off guard. They didn't know what to do with it. They they went as far as to basically ask the audience, "How do we market this show to you?" Because we 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 really don't understand it. I mean, that's, oh man, that's, their answer to that that question was not good. <laughs> sorry. I, oh man. Which, I, which, yeah. Which answer do you mean? Sorry, the answer is we don't know how to market this show. How should we market? I uh, yeah. Market I, and the show. And I'm thinking of the ads they eventually came up with. Like, we just talked about how beautiful and elegant, like, Toonami and thoughtful Toonami's ads were. And then you got YTV's ads, yeah. which were, uh, what was my favorite one? I linked it to Jesse. I linked it to you the other day. It's like, uh, knock, knock, who's there? Giant robots, giant robots who? Giant robots that watch Gundam Wing. Like, like the disconnect yeah. between the ads and the show. <laughs> yeah, well, this, this I, is... I was... Uh... And then go ahead. That, that classic one where, hey, kids, you like cool explosions and storylines are confused, even the confused, even the old saddles. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That- uh, I mean, ironically, that uh, ad that talked about con- confusing the adults with the storyline is actually a very accurate per- portrayal of what you get <laughs> in the show. But yeah, uh, um, <laughs> it, it really just outlined a lot of confusion and how to make it work. And and to be fair, um, we are very fortunate those, those YTV ads did surface. And you can find them on YouTube. In fact, one of them is on my, uh, my YouTube channel. Yeah. Channel, uh, and that was uh, uh, recovered by uh, D, who works at Moonchase. Uh, she 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 actually ripped that one for me. And there's another one out there. They're in interesting curiosity or piece of nostalgia if if you actually remember them when, was, when we were watching TV at the time. But uh, to be fair, those ads didn't really air very often. Uh, and I think even when they did air, they were always tacked onto the end credits of a show, never during an ad break. So mm-hmm. they like they even when YTV did steal the deal and get the show, they weren't really pushing it uh, very hard. And I, and I can't help but wonder how different this would have been if YTV had just jumped the gun and blindly followed the example of the States and just picked up all of Gundam Wing and aired it on the zone uh, throughout 2000, rather than holding off until fall and then sort of overthinking it and uh, ultimately putting it in a, in a bad time slot. It, it originally debuted at 11, 11.30 p.m., uh, when mm-hmm. it did when it did come around in in September, um, and then there's also the the endless waltz situation, which we'll we'll get to in a bit. Um, <laughs> I I wonder how different things would have been if that had actually happened. Like if if they had just not overthought it and just thrown it on the air. I wonder if it could if it would have had the same kind of impact that it did in the state still, uh, because I th- I. I'm not sure if it would, because I think that a, a huge aspect of Gundam Wing's success in the United States, and, and just to be clear, when Gundam Wing aired in the U.S., it was a massive mainstream hit. It wasn't just a, a thing that was popular with people who were getting into anime or um, people who already were anime fans. Uh, this was a it was a mainstream hit that uh, was a big success with just people watching children's programming in general at the time on Cartoon Network. Uh, and while on YTV, it was it was certainly very popular. It was still a big hit in Canada, of course. Uh, if it wasn't, we wouldn't be doing a podcast episode on it right now. But it wasn't, it didn't hit that same level of mainstream success. It was more of a 
not I wouldn't go as far as to say a cult hit, but it was a it had it was a show with a very large fandom and very devoted following, but not something that caught on with the the mainstream in the way they did with the US. And I do think that the tsunami presentation and promotion of it played a big role in that as well. Um but I guess I'm just I'm just kind of curious. Do you think that if YTV had just thrown the whole thing on the air uh without that same kind of cultivation but at the same time not overthinking it and kind of blowing it like they did do you think it would have performed better or do you think it still could have caught on just on its on its own merits Mm, i think it's possible at a different time slot it could have reached more people for example uh but i don't know like that's a a great what if question but i have no idea it's it's so long ago and so much has happened since then it's kind of it's kind of hard to backtrack and and speculate like that it's just something i was thinking about the other day like what what if they did do that that would have been that would have been really interesting see i would have preferred that uh say unedited in its time slot because they could have shown it unedited at that time slot of of 11 38 p.m absolutely um, yeah, and the, the funny thing, and we'll, we'll get into this more. They did. Uh, it was just the censored version that they picked up. Um, whereas Cartoon Network ran the censored version in the afternoon and then the uncensored version during their midnight run. Um, I should point out that going back and watching the show, it, I don't think there really was that much visual censorship in it. I know that one thing they did, they would sometimes cut out pilots uh, or mech pilots screaming before their their mobile suits were destroyed and did a lot to sort of just de-emphasize the 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 immediate impact of of people dying but they still made it clear that that people died and in a for a show that focuses a lot on sacrifice and death as being like inherent to the human drive or whatever the hell trace is always talking about it, it, it definitely is undermined when the characters are not allowed to say die or kill but have to say destroy or yeah you know, some ridiculous euphemism like that. Um, which Actually, is weird. maybe yeah. in that, maybe in that situation, probably should have been on earlier. Yeah, like I, I think there, I think there is a certain level of okay, this is this is ridiculous, um, having it on at, at in the nighttime when older people are going to watch it. If it's specifically on in a children's time slot, then that's somewhat more palatable. And to be fair, they did cut out a ton of blood. So uh, I watched Gundam Wing the first time I watched it, the multiple times that I watched it. Uh, I like I recorded it off YTV as it aired, mm-hmm. and then I would rewatch the VHS tapes. And when I got access to the DVDs, I think in around 2003, I rewatched the series uncut for the first time. And something that I did for my website that I never actually posted on my website was screen cap all the scenes that I could tell were different. Mm-hmm. So I actually have on my computer entire folders of images um, of things that they cut out or changed in the series. And I, so I can tell you yeah. they actually did cut out a lot of blood, um, a lot of blood, and every so often they'd cut out, like, I think weapons or shots of weapons in particular. Um, oh, really? Because I, I know that, you know, we... we... There's a lot of gunplay and, uh, and, yeah. and guns in the series, which definitely one of the the more startling things you see in those first three episodes that that YTV aired, along with all the constant suicide stuff. Um, but uh, I, you know, this was also remember this was pre 9/11, so yeah, the idea yeah, of being able to the, the idea of being able to have you know themes of war and and um, and weapons depicted in children's programming it was starting to sort of become okay we were seeing it in like the justice league cartoons cartoons as well they were they were actually allowed to have real guns in in those shows which was pretty yeah i can't remember the weapon stuff for sure but i remember like what i remember is things like like pretty much blood 
Mm-hmm. Tons of blood. Like a scene would, they'd cut out someone slapping someone, but they'd show like the yeah. red mark on their face. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think Catherine's bra was enter, was like edited into a tank top, like things like that. Relina would say, come I, I, I think, come I, and get I, I, me, I think they left in me. Catherine's bra because I, I remember that from the original. Uh, okay, yeah, I don't, I don't set remember because it's been like fifteen years. <laughs> the removal of certain firearms was when it was whenever a person was holding a firearm to their to someone else's temple. Mm. That happened twice. Yeah, that yeah. was probably about like forty-five and, seconds, to a minute in length. Yeah. So that that was that. That that was actually something that they even continued to edit in uh, on Adult Swim programs for a couple years when uh, they started showing anime and, and on Adult Swim as well. Having uh, guns pointed to heads was was a no-no for a little while. It was interesting. Also, in ter- in terms of the blood, um, the interesting thing is though that the uncut version. You only get that. You only get a lot of blood in the first thirteen episodes. Yeah. Yeah. And then the show kind of waters itself down after that. Yeah. It uh, in in more than one way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So so basically, we we got those, those those three episodes. They made a strong impression. And one other thing I, I, is also worth pointing out: one major difference between the U.S. broadcast and the Canadian broadcast is that the Canadian broadcast had the original Japanese opening. Um, this yeah. actually was yes. not on any version that aired on Cartoon Network. They always replaced it with a 30-second customized Toonami intro because, you know, they part of the big marketing push was that it was part, it was like integrated within the Toonami block to the point that even its opening theme was part of Toonami as well. Like they're just showing that this is we understand the show. It's it's a part of what it's a it's integral to what we're doing. Um, mm. And the way we do things is integral to the show that you're watching. Also, there is no pre-credits teaser. Um, unlike, unlike, I guess most anime these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so it just starts with the, the show, Japanese opening. You start cold. Yeah, yeah, and it, and I can tell from my experience, it was like being th- you, you, you know, in this point where years to a year after Pokemon started, and this idea of an, uh, anime pil- coming up on the airways, localized anime showing up on the airways, it's just starting to starting to gain momentum, and then suddenly you're you're given a you're, you're thrown this this basically unchanged Japanese opening. It's it's you feel like you've just been thrown into the deep end. And I I can say from my own experience, I for for me I thought that was awesome because it, it kind of mm-hmm. blew my mind at the time because I just got t- thrown into something totally different and totally new and something I hadn't seen before because at this point my only real exposure to like Japanese music, I guess, had been uh on, on Sonic Jam, which is a like a Sonic <laughs> compilation. Uh, a compilation of Sonic the Hedgehog games on the Sega Saturn. They had they had included a teaser for the Sonic the Hedgehog OVA, and it had some of the music that was that was featured in 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 that. Um, but even that was just kind of they were well, I guess uh, just communication is also mangled English lyrics. But the the lyrics for the Sonic OVA song were were all just mangled English lyrics. I mean, not not only was this an exposure to me for like just kind of pure Japanese pop, but just for an op in general. It was the first op I had ever seen. Oh. It was, yeah, it was the first time I had seen an op on an anime, um, and it, it just sort of it, it kind of planted that idea of like, oh, like the way anime airs in Japan is different from what we get. Like they're like a, it was just this big cultural jump. And I have to say, like I think that having the Japanese opening attached to it um, may have also contributed to to YTV's skepticism about the series with the the way that they initially approached it. I thought the opening was always like so exciting because mm-hmm. um, I, I at the time I was like the way I listened to Japanese music was I would illegally download it off the Internet. Um, 
I think that's and... still true for many people because the <laughs> only legal way to get a lot of Japanese music is to purchase a physical CD single from Japan. Yeah, but I mean, like at the time, like I had watched like little bits, like they think like real player videos that were like super tiny were popular at the time, oh, and you yeah. could like watch like the original Pokemon theme, for example. Mm-hmm in Japanese you you had there was access to some of those things and I think there was a sense of excitement in being able to turn on my TV and not like have fan subs in the VCR or anything just like turn on my TV turn on YTV and be able to see like the Japanese opening of a show I thought that was like super cool yeah it was it was pretty amazing honestly the Japanese title card yeah yeah all, yeah, all the, the the text was all in Japanese, I, and yeah. the, I mean the episode titles in the show itself were in Japanese as well, which you know was in the the U.S. broadcast, and and of course the to be continued at the end of, at the end of every episode as well, all all Japanese text untranslated. It, it really marked a a big cultural jump for me and probably a lot of other people, and I think just that presentation, that sort of raw feeling, unaltered presentation of the show, I think. That itself, I think, almost generated more interest in anime for me than any of the actual creative content that that, that was in Gundam Wing. Of course, it still kind of blew me away and uh, and presented me with something new and and inspired my my curiosity in a lot of ways. But I think seeing that Japanese opening was the most impactful part of it all. I'm wondering though if you'll agree with me though that replacing the ending. Was probably the best damn thing. Oh my god, that was great. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, I, no, I, I don't. I don't know anybody who likes the original Japanese ending of. Gundam I Wing. like the original Japanese ending. Really? Oh. Relina's safari fun time. I like the song. Yeah, but... I don't like Relina hanging out with rhinos. Like, I don't. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I never... think. <laughs> I think presentation-wise, um, the existence of that ending is the um, is the most flawed presentational aspect of of Gundam Wing. So replacing it with an yeah. instrument, with an actual instrumental from the soundtrack album of the title song was really awesome. Yeah. And and it, it, yeah, that was from the album. I didn't I didn't realize yeah. it until Ian pointed it out to me earlier. I thought it, I always thought it was just a remix that was done by Bandai Entertainment or commissioned by Bandai Entertainment, but it actually was from the uh, the first uh, Operation One uh, OST. Yeah, I don't know. I yeah the the it's just love uh, ED is. It, it gets increasing. They never change it, and it just gets increasingly unsuitable and ridiculous. Yeah, that's as, my point. As really, this <laughs> character like, develops in the show too. It doesn't really fit with you know. It doesn't fit with the show. It, um, if it was for another show, I probably wouldn't care. Yeah. <laughs> but for this show, it just it never yeah. felt like it fit. Well, I I think it, I think we mentioned in a previous episode too that it was almost like a single bit of levity in a show that was otherwise humorless. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think that might have been the idea behind it. Mm-mm. Yeah, leaving it out from a from a marketing perspective was probably a good idea. But uh, I actually went back and I I did rewatch the whole show for the first time in 17 years because I hadn't watched it um, since it first aired on on white its very first run on the fall of 2000 and YTV. Um, and that was the the ending was like something I look forward to at the end every time. I I really I really enjoyed. I, I'm glad that it exists. Um, but yeah, leaving it out was was a good idea. So a- after so. Just to, to reiterate again, um, for after the, the U.S. debut, Canada only had three episodes. So, well, I guess, uh, Ian, I know you, you didn't really latch onto the show till later, but, Pan, is is this the point that you kind of ventured into GeoCities and uh, and found the, the, no. the fandom that was burgeoning in, no. the, in the United States, no. or was it more later? 
Uh, I feel like it was later. For, I think to some extent, I honestly don't remember because 17 years ago is it's it's been a very long time. I have trouble remembering what I did last week. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. So, <laughs> so like probably like it was definitely on my radar. Um, but it wasn't really until the show started airing in Canada, I think, that I really got into it. Um, I think as I'm not sure. I think I was I- interested in stuff like like coming up to the airing of it. But the thing with Gundam Wing is only having three episodes, a lot of stuff is still very, very abstract. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard to really sink your teeth into it. Mind you, the fandom is sort of arbitrary sometimes, so may, may or may not have mattered. But I don't I don't I don't know if I can actually answer that question. Yeah. What I can't is after the show debuted, I was like, like head first into into uh, my love of the show and exploring it online. Yeah, I think it's interesting you pointed out as Gundamwing being something abstract. I I thought of it at that time with only having a small taste. It was a it was an abstract idea of something cool more than anything else, yeah. and I wanted more. Um, but I still I I, I couldn't fully process. Uh, it, it wasn't enough to fully process it or follow what was going on with the fandom, and it exploded in the states. Um, I think that uh, if you if you look at old GeoCities sites, you will see that Gundam Wing is very well represented uh, in a lot in a lot of those old communities. Um, so so of course YTV eventually did decide to uh, to license the rest of Gundam Wing, and it debuted in the fall of 2000. But they made some very interesting choices in the way that that it was rolled out. Gundam Wing had, of course, a uh, an OVA spinoff called Endless Waltz, and it was uh, compiled into a movie form. Even though that Endless Waltz was supposed to be the follow-up to Gundam Wing, YTV, for some reason that still has not really been determined, uh, they decided to air the movie first. It was a full two months before that movie showed up in the U.S. as well. Uh, it aired in Canada mm-hmm. on September 11th, 2000, and it didn't show up uh, on Cartoon Network until, I think, November November 10th of that year. So we also, got it a whole another, few months early. So another point of fact, Toonami didn't get the movie version. They had to cut up the OVAs themselves to make it Really? Oh. Yeah, they didn't get the movie version. Because I, I was going to point out also that um, the version that YTV got was was a totally unique version as well. Um, yeah. We got, I guess, the biggest thing about Endless Waltz point is that it was uncensored, despite the fact that the version of the series they got was censored. And the Endless Waltz is notably more violent than uh, than, than the Gundam Wing TV series as well. And YTV knew this. Uh, they gave it a 14-plus rating, so they had watched it. They knew that the content they had picked up was uncensored. Um, they still gave it a relatively early time slot. I think it was 7 p.m. And, uh, and you know, despite the fact that they watched through it, evaluated it, they still thought that this was the best way to kick off the series with this movie very obviously set at the end of the series shown in an early time slot, a much earlier time slot than this series itself was shown at. Um, it, absolutely baffling decision. Um, but the, the to, to be specific with the version of Endless Waltz that aired on YTV, it was mostly the movie version, but they actually spliced out the last two minutes and spliced in the OVA version of the epilogue, which is a, st- is a big step down because the uh, the movie version has some really great character animation and really great sequences in its epilogue. Uh, so some of the only real strong character animation in the entire series, I'd say, especially uh, the sequence with Duo and Hildy. Um, I don't know why they did this. I, my best guess is that they wanted to get both of the two mix songs in, uh, because this way we got... The movie itself only has Last Impression, but this way we got Last Impression and White Reflection. So it was... An interesting idea. I don't know why they did that. I, I just think it's because Last Impression fades out and you get four minutes of scroll. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That might be it, too. 
Yeah, I was trying. Yeah. To, I was. I was trying to get a confirmation to see if there was anything interesting like that with the the uh, the U.S. airing from people who uh, who watched it, but uh, no one. Yeah, I even talked to like uh, like Sketch from Toonami Faithful Podcast, and he couldn't remember. I was surprised. Yeah. Um, from what I know, the U.S. airing is just three OVA episodes, censored, um, recaps cut, stuff like that. Uh-huh. It ends with white reflection. Pretty basic. Yeah, and I and I in addition to the series, I went back and rewatched Endless Waltz and. Um, I have to say, Endless Waltz is awesome. Uh, my, I, I thought that going back and watching Gundam Wing, it might, may have improved my opinion of the series, which has sort of gone downhill over the years. Um, I was surprised at, at how good Endless Waltz is. In fact, I kind of want to watch it again. Jesse, have you ever seen the OVAs for Endless Waltz? I haven't seen the OVA version, no. I think it's worth checking out just mm-hmm. to see how they um, handled the music between the OVAs and the uh, movie. Yeah, there were a lot of differences, I understand. Yes. Yeah. Um, for one thing, the, the initial missile attack on um, on X-1999 or mm-hmm. something like that yeah. is all scored to music that doesn't even appear in... Music that's not even used in the movie. The, the movie is the movie version is on Crunchyroll, and uh, I, I I recommend checking it out if you haven't seen it in a while. Uh, it's beautifully animated. Um, in fact, that the, I mean that whole sequence with uh, Wing Zero launching and then and uh, and fighting the Shenlong that is that's such a beautiful sequence. That might be one of the best looking sequences in any Gundam, uh, at least up until maybe Gundam Thunderbolt, which only came out recently. But uh, what really struck me watching this and this is something that there's no way you could have picked up anybody watching it in on YTV could have picked up on when it first aired because they hadn't seen the series and they're missing basically every bit of context for the characters and and political situation and and the events that led up to it with the character of Marimea Kushranada um because her, the whole storyline surrounding her is effectively a pantomime of probably the most ridiculous and ill-conceived plot development of the original series which as i mentioned earlier um, Relina Peacecraft essentially becoming Queen of Earth and uniting all nations. Um, and I do realize that, you know, in that plot point in the series, she was effectively a figurehead making a symbolic move. Um, but, you know, the actual geopolitical operations of the, of, uh, the Romefeller Foundation and the, the nations of Earth at that time were never clear enough that you could really tell to what extent it was a, a symbolic move. And when I watched the original series... On YTV, I think I remember that being the point when I stopped, and I'm just like, wait a minute, this is actually kind of stupid, because um, th- it was airing when I was like, you know, 14, so I was just starting to become critical of media uh, at that point. I'm starting to understand what is good and what is bad in a movie or a TV show, and I thought that if I went back and watched it now, 17 years later, maybe I would discover some kind of nuance to what was going on. Um, that I didn't pick up on as a, as a kid, but nope, it really was that stupid. Uh, but, but I, I, I thought it was, yeah. as, that's one thing I admire about Gundam Wing is that they kind of went back, they, they kind of realized, yeah, that was a really bad plot development. In fact, the, the series itself kind of steps away from it in, in its last, uh, in, in its, in its last chunk of 10 episodes or so. It's like they're being reflective on that idea of, uh, the ability to administer political will, uh, being influenced through genetics and lineage, which is essentially what happens to Relina in the series. She kind of disappears for a couple episodes, and then suddenly she's leading the Sank Kingdom. We don't really see how she is able to justify that ascent, apart from the fact that she was the daughter of the former leader of the Sank Kingdom. Um, and it's, there's just this implication that ideas like pacifism can be just just willed through through lineage or or 
you know, other other sort of arbitrary things like that. Um, and I, I, I just kind of impressed that they were that the staff that the staff on Gundam Wing who worked on the series and the movie could were willing to sort of reflect on that in that way. You know, pr- probably the the most impactful thing, and especially if you were watching it on YTV, was the scene at the end where uh, Mari Maya gets shot, uh, and of course winds up laying in a pool of blood. Um, and I, I was thinking about that scene a lot, and if we look at Mari Maya as a pantomime of Relina in the series, this makes me wonder if this was a commentary on the way audiences rela- uh, react to Relina as a character as well, because she gets so much hate, I know in the Western fandom, some justified much of it unjustified and i can't i i i would imagine that the reaction was the same in japan and it's just something i that 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 i was thinking about a lot after watching uh endless waltz uh, after so many again after so many years uh so i'm gonna be really honest mm-hmm. and admit to everyone listening that jesse told me a week ago to probably rewatch endless waltz <laughs> and instead i rewatched the first 38 episodes of the show and i never reached endless Waltz. that's okay so I can't comment on that. Um, I know you have, you have thoughts on, on, on I blame Rolina. you, by the way. That's okay. I have yeah. to tell you, though, I blame you for, like, I watched, like, 38 episodes of Gundam Wing suddenly, uh, and it kind of ate my life. So this is yeah. all your fault. Um, but, I mean, I can speak to uh, fandom disliking Relina, and uh, just for kicks, I shoved, like, anti-Relina into Google um, the other day, and it brought up, like, the old Angel Fire websites. Like, GeoCities no longer exists, but it brought up a lot of the old content. (laughs) It brought up a lot of the old content, and it's still, like, it looks exactly the same that it did uh, back then, because it's, you know, it's the stuff from back then. And it just, how many people hated Relina, and how much of that hatred um, was they tried to justify it in her being like annoying or, you know, shouting things like hero, come and kill me. But in reality, how much of, of their hatred of her was based in pure sexism. Um, you know, we don't like it's a, it's Relina's reckless. Okay. That's great. Have you seen any other character in this show? They all do really, really reckless things. Right. Yeah. So there was almost double standard applied to her. Anything she did was seen in like the worst possible light. And you vacation to hate her. Um, but there was a lot of fandom, to be fair, there was a lot of fandom that really, really liked Relina. There was almost this divide of, like, were you pro-Relina or anti-Relina? Um, I, the good news is in that, like, looking at, like, for example, like, the current Gundam Wing Tumblr fandom, it's still active. Um, that You don't see that as much anymore. Like, that seems to be, a, 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 that anti-Relina sediment seems to be a product of, of some of that time frame uh, in fandom, which which is interesting in itself. You can hold any character in the show accountable for their idiocy or not being properly developed. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Or she's, being she's, annoying. Exactly. Yeah. She's no worse than, than anyone else in the show in that exactly. respect. <laughs> and yeah. Exactly. And it, it seems to be like because she's supposed to be this female lead, she, and it, it's, it's about, it has, for me, it's, it's related to her gender. Because she yeah. was the female lead, this uh-huh. hate got sort of targeted at her. And some of it, I think, at the time especially also came because there was this trend in, uh, this really horrible trend. You still see it to some extent, but it, it was definitely at that time of in slash communities in villainizing or like basically doing anything you can to a female character to remove them from the picture so that you can slash your male characters. Um, that was a trend that you saw in fan fiction, in fan works at the time. It was pretty vile. Um, and, and that, I think, also contributed to the way she was treated uh, by fandom. 
I made it a purpose not to read any fan fiction with Relina in it because mm-hmm. that would have been too. That's not what I want in Gundam Wing fan fiction. Mm-hmm. Put it that way. Fair, but I mean, yeah. like, there- since I don't, yeah, I don't want that 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 negativity of someone who hates Relina in a Gundam Wing mm-hmm. fanfic. Yeah, I know. And it's interesting that it sort of becomes in order to survive in that space and avoid that that type of like that that hate, you have to actually avoid a character that you like almost completely. There's something almost twisted in that. Um, But that was the reality of that fandom space for sure. I might have been naive at the time, but I don't think I bought into the anti-Relina stuff. Mm -hmm. And I I don't think it even got to the point where like like just just got to the point where. That living and becoming queen of the world and going and going, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think there was some part of me who wanted to see the show make at whatever twist and turn was coming ahead. Yeah, and I think like I was actually I loved Relina. She was I think my here and Relina were my favorite characters the first couple times I watched through the show. I mean I, I thought she was super cool. She got to you know she stood up for herself. She. She took no shit. Uh-huh. <laughs> she did all these really, really, really cool things. So, uh, you know, I also liked her and Hero um, together. So to this day, the, the hatred that, that that she got really does bother me. For the most part, I would say that I don't have any major problems with Relina after episode 10. Mm. Like they sorted out in a way that, okay, we're not going to focus on her as a schoolgirl anymore. We're mm-hmm. not going to focus this heavily on the Hero Relina relationship as much, and mm-hmm. we're going to move into more political stuff. So that helped enormously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. It, I just thought, I thought she was cool even with the schoolgirl stuff. I'm yeah. gonna be really honest. Mm-hmm. They they did as I guess they, as I kind of touched on before, they did kind of miss a step when they they transitioned her from that that schoolgirl character to a, a political figure. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, as you know, well, we can always complain about her becoming the the figurehead queen. Uh, later in the series, but I think that that jump would have been much more palatable if we had, if they had uh, taken a little more time to explore her becoming leader of the Saint Kingdom. Because with the information they give us, she basically she travels to the Saint Kingdom and basically assumes the role as leader solely because her father had led that nation before, which is a very questionable <laughs> questionable way of approaching that. Um, and I I think that. That, that that kind of jump, I think, contributes to a lot of the criticism she gets, the more valid criticism that she gets. But yeah, she they she definitely tends to get a lot of hate dumped on her for things that you Existing. could criticize any character yeah. in the show for, and and like you have to really bend your um your expectations for things like human interaction and motivation when it comes to the way anybody acts in you know, the Mobile <laughs> Report Gundam Wing. So <laughs> before we get into like. Uh, more behind-the-scenes stuff and why uh, the writing went in the direction that it did in Gundam Wing. Um, for better or worse, uh, looking at how it uh, how it was able to have the impact that it did in, in, in Western fandom, um, we, we, I do have to point out the uh, the Endless Waltz ad, which we uh, we mentioned a lot on this show and uh, came up a lot in a lot of Canadian fandom discussion in times past. Um, so we're not. I, I think we ne- we never were able to determine exactly when that ad aired um I, I know that endless waltz did air three times on ytv it had its first airing before before the series started back in september of 2000 they aired it again i think in february of 2001 after the series ended and then it showed up again during an animania presentation in 2002 um and there, there's nobody's really sure when this infamous 
Endless Waltz has Endless Waltz ad really aired. Um, but it, it and, and I really hope that it services one day because man, that ad encapsulates everything that was wrong with the way YTV was uh, uh, trying to int- tr- trying to force every sh- every show to conform to the way that they uh, they wanted to do their keep it their keep it weird marketing scheme. And I think that's a a big reason why Gundam Wing was just kind of rejected by what YTV was trying to do at the time. Um, I'm curious to know what the actual fan response they got was from that initial three-episode airing in the the April of that year. I don't think we ever really know what happened. Just we know that whatever happened resulted in the show being given a very late time slot when it when it debuted in uh, in September of 2000. But I don't know. I almost kind of think it had, it had less to do with the actual response it got and more to do with YTV just feeling that the show could not exist in the ecosystem that they were creating at the time uh, when they when everything had to kind of conform to that keep it weird standard, which ironically is why it fits so well in Toonami, because they were doing the opposite on that. And they they wanted shows to be integrated. But the the uh, aesthetic they were going for there easily accommodated something like Gundam Wing, uh, whereas it was kind of the polar opposite for was going on in YTV. But um yeah, that endless waltz ad, man, I wanna if 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 again, to all you archivists out there, if you think you might have one of YTV's ads for Endless Waltz on a tape somewhere, please uh dig it out. I will pay you money for it at this point. I just want to see that thing again uh, and, and expose it to the world. The world has to see this. <laughs> Jesse, I I actually have VHS tapes in the basement. I videotaped Gundam Wing as it aired originally. I think Do you I, want it? I think I discussed this with you at one point. I think <laughs> we determined that you probably didn't have the Endless Waltz ad. I mean, if you want to yeah, go through it, Yeah, I may not have that, can. but I, I might have, I don't know. I can check it out. I gotta find a VCR. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of the challenge these days. Well, we can we can leave that for now. I'm sure, yeah. uh, I mean, VHS tape doesn't degrade that quickly, so... <laughs> Um, but yeah, that ad is terrible. Uh, but I would love to. S- I, I I think the world does need to see that. Um, if if you're not familiar with the ad we're talking about, basically they take clips from Endless Waltz and just say that every character is named Walt, and they all introduce each other as Walt and talk to themselves, saying, "Hey, Walt, I'm Walt." It's it was a really bad concept. Um, and it didn't and it did not sell the movie in in any way whatsoever. Oh, I guess Ian, when did you first start watching the show? Or first learn about the show? I first learned about it when it was airing on Toonami, because I had mm-hmm. friends who had had access to American Cable, and they were watching the show. Oh, okay. And they thought it was really cool. And then the buzz around the show was, was a lot of hype. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't delving too deeply into what Gundam was, um, why the show was receiving acclaim, stuff like that. So when I sat down to watch... Um, Gundam Wing Endless Waltz in September 2000. That was my first experience at all with Gundam Wing. Mm-hmm. With the story, with the characters, with the animation style, with the way with the way the movie told its story, all all that was new to me. And it's funny because I had this experience before when Space aired the last Galaxy Express 999 movie. Mm-hmm. And I saw that and I didn't see anything else I didn't see anything else in that franchise either. So both these two instances, I'm watching movies with gorgeous animation, lots of characters running around, and random weirdos voiced by Scott McNeil. Yeah, o- o- ocean dubs for both of those productions. 
Yeah. Um, I, I think we get to hear the full gamut of Scott McNeil accents in uh, in throughout Gundam Wing as well. I was I, when I was rewatching those series, I uh, I watched most of it subbed, but I watched a, a good chunk of it dubbed as well. And man, a lot of a lot of Scott McNeil accents in that show. Yeah. So and, that was an experience watching Endless Waltz without context. It's not that I didn't exactly know what was going on, but I just didn't have the context to un- to understand mm-hmm. understand the importance of these characters. The consensus is that you know we we a lot of people found the show and attached to the show, but I think a lot of the it was as Ian kind of highlighted. I think a lot of the uh, fan fervor and fanfare about it was originating from its U.S. broadcast, yeah. and the Canadian broadcast was just handled in such a sidelined way that it just couldn't replicate that. Um, and I, I know that YTV did move it earlier. It didn't stay at 11.30 for very long. They did bring it to, I think, 10.30, and eventually it did come to about 9 or 9.30. I think they were airing it back-to-back with Dragon Ball Z at one point, but it was airing on, like, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Yeah. Something like that. YTV had very strange scheduling at that point. And when I watched it, I was recording it on VHS. Uh every night because it was 11:30 was was too late for me at that point i i was not a kid who stayed up late w- tsunami after uh gundam wing ended they, they moved on to other gundam shows they showed uh eighth ms team and 0080 um shortly after that some of the older ovas and you know eventually then we got big o and tenchi muyo but ytv didn't move on to any of those things i i don't know if they ever would have moved on to any of those things even if gundam wing had been uh better handled um, but that did result in, as we like to always talk about, kind of a three-year gap where Toonami was taking off with dozens of, of anime shows airing and none of it really making it over here. Um, and, you know, looking back, three years doesn't seem like a long time for that gap, especially since we're now uh, we, we, we're now at, a, like, a seven-year gap since uh, since Bionics went off the air and there hasn't really been... Or Bionics went off the air and there hasn't really been anything going on since, but... It's important to emphasize that this three-year gap was taking place during the Pokemon craze, when that was still gaining steam. And that was a really critical point for English-speaking fandom. Um, and I think that kind of having that uh, absence of, of content readily available for, for mainstream viewers in Canada had a huge impact on the way the, the fandom sort of was shaped um, in Canada versus the United States, and even, even the UK or Australia. And... But on, on the other hand, it also made the emergence of Bionics a few years later all the more significant. Um, for all for all we know, things could have fallen off a cliff kind of the same way they did in the U.S. around the same time that Bionics started, um, if it hadn't been for that three-year gap. So, again, you have ups and downs, very different directions for, for both of those fandoms. We have to keep in mind, though, that some of the shows that were on Cartoon Network during this three-year gap, they did. They showed the first Gundam series, the whole 79, a year yeah. after. And we know that was that was through strong arm tactics by Bandai and Sunrise. Yeah, that was. Let's. It is important to emphasize that um, that uh, Bandai did kind of bungle the Gundam franchise entirely. And what people like to say was the reason for that um, was because they chose to follow up Gundam Wing with the original 1979 Mobile Suit Gundam. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the 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 popular opinion seems to be that they should have followed it up with Gundam X because uh, Gundam X it carries on a lot of the aspects that 
I think people latched onto in Gundam Wing or probably would have appealed to Western fandom, but it's Gundam Wing is kind of stigmatized or sorry, Gundam X is kind of stigmatized in Japan because it it got it had really bad ratings. I think people were just kind of getting burnt out on um on uh, alternate timeline Gundam at that point. Um but uh, yeah, it was it was definitely a bad move. Uh they did follow it up later with G Gundam which uh was a modest success and and it, I was at the time, I was legitimately surprised that that didn't come, did not come on YTV. I'm still legitimately so, surprised. Yeah. I mean, as I met, like, J- Jerry Chu and Bandai Entertainment were always at the forefront pushing stuff to come up here, which is why we got Gundam Wing as early as we did, why we had such a, so many Bandai Entertainment titles early on, on the Bionics block. Like, they, I'm sure they were trying to get G Gundam on TV up here. And I, it's kind of surprising that YTV didn't go for it because I mean, Gundam wing, like it wasn't a huge ma- mainstream success, but it was a success and it had a fandom. Um, G Gundam and especially G Gundam had a toy line. It, the toys were in stores. Um, you saw them everywhere. G Gundam is still like, I think at the top of my, how the fuck did this anime not air in Canada list? It was just so strange that, that they, that they turned it, that they obviously had turned it down. We were touching on the English dub, uh, a, a little bit there and i think it's important to emphasize that uh yes le- many english dubs were done in vancouver by ocean group but gundam wing was kind of the show and, and correct me if i'm wrong i think it kind of was the first anime that introduced that idea of anime english language voice actors as kind of being celebrities mm. um because we saw the voice actors appearing at different conventions uh, in, a, in a real high-profile kind of status. I know that was certainly the case even in Vancouver here, um, where they're incredibly easy guests to book for, for a convention. Uh, they were all they had, like, top billing and got a huge reception. And I know that was also the case in other places of Canada and in the United States as well. Mm-hmm. I My only caveat to that mm-hmm. would be just to consider Robotech a different beast entirely. Yeah, yeah, that's... Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. an exception. Yeah. That's an exception. But Gundam Wing, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward dub adaptation. And these voice actors were familiar based on the other cartoons they did mm-hmm. for mainframe or for the, the other children's anime dubs they done. So it became really, it was really fast. And, and Ranma as well. Yeah. Yeah. That Scott McNeil got identified with Hugo Maxwell. That Kirby Morrow got identified with Troa. I don't think that was quite the case with Ranma. I think there was some sort of, I think it was more anonymous between the fans, but with Gundam Wing, it was a lot more specific. Mm-hmm. People were calling out what performances they liked the best. Um, they were calling out who their favorite voice actors were, and that's how that ball got rolling. Yeah. And, and note, this was during the era when anime companies didn't specifically credit which characters each actor did. They would the the if you look at Bandai Entertainment's old credits for the show, uh, as with all all credits they produced at the time, and also that ADV and the way ADV and Genion did it as well, or Pioneer Entertainment, who they were at the time, um, they would specifically credit the Japanese voice actors, but the English language voice actors would always be introduced in like a big block later on down in the credits, not specifying who each character was. But uh, Gundam Wing was one of the first shows that sort of changed audience perceptions on that or or marked a change in the way audiences recognize dub voice actors um so, so pe- who do you think who do you think voiced general septum do we do we not know has is this no, a, we is it a mystery we don't we don't um <laughs> we, we have no idea no one has a good theory they just I think have... oh it's 
it's one of the Dobson brothers. Oh, it's it's um it's Wu Fei's voice actor. Well, we don't we don't really know. Yeah, Gen- General Septum. Um, I I remember when I was watching uh Gundam Wing, I my dad watched a little bit of it with me, and General Septum's voice was the last straw for him. He, <laughs> uh, I I was still blinded by the novelty of the show at that point that I didn't really mind General Septum's voice when I was first watching it when I when I was thirteen or fourteen. But um, going back and watching that now, yeah, man, that is. A- <laughs> That is a that is a unique voice. Um, <laughs> much like the ending credit sequence, I am kind of glad that it's there and will forever be preserved. Yes. But <laughs> and again, I mean, the Seiyu for that performance was rather dull. I think I, I think it. A lot I think of it was Ishinjiba. Yeah. Yes, they are. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, one one performance that kind of stood out to me oddly was Cans. Uh, he was voiced by David McKay, not David K. David McKay. Um, he, he actually voiced a number of characters in the show, and I haven't really heard him in other dubs. Um, and, and Kans isn't a very good character. He's not, he's kind of, he seems like he was whipped up at the last minute and was, again, like many aspects of the show, sort of retconned to be much more significant later on. In fact, I think they eventually said he was behind Operation Meteor, which you don't see any evidence of in the show itself. But, uh, he, he has, vo- his Jap- he, he's depicted as sort of this, he looks like an eco-terrorist, even though that doesn't really fit his his uh his character at all but um david mckay kind of gave that element or that that kind of element or or candidates to his character and i thought it was i thought it was pretty effective um overall gundam wing has a bit of an uneven dub i would say that it's it's well cast you have like a lot of general septum moments and a lot of you know as, as much as we love uh scott mcneil doing different accents that's not really a good a good approach to to handling background characters a lot of the time, but all, the characters are all really well cast. Um, but you get a lot of weird wooden deliveries, and the the funny thing is that a lot of those deliveries you hear aren't because of bad performances, but because this is uh when Ocean was doing the Gundam Wing dub, they used a program called WordFit, which would actually r- rather than trying to get the voice actors to match the lip flaps, they would apply this program to the recordings to try and get it to automatically fit the word flap, the mouth flaps, um, which resulted in some really, uh, really kind of awkward, uh, contracted or dragged out performances. Uh, if you listen to the dub, you, you, you should be able, you can pick out what lines were fell victim to this process. I didn't even know that existed. That's yeah. really neat. Explains a lot. Yeah, it sure I does. do also, I do also want to shout out to Erica Okuma who voices Lady Un. Yes. She probably has one of the toughest roles in the series, and she does it really well. And in fact, um, there's rather extreme, extreme bit of trivia here. She was in the um, Canadian Japanese production of G Savior. Oh boy! <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she's been involved with it, kind right. of, and with an original Gundam production. Yeah, I still need to see that. Uh, I just, I just want to see a Wyndham Earl from uh, Twin Peaks in, uh, <laughs> uh, in, in a, in a maligned live-action Gundam project. It has, it has a lot of, to- it has a lot of um, top-notch, below-the-line crew. It has cinematographers and production designers of the future Battlestar Galactica, yeah. and it has a, a composer who's been nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah, it has, it has, it has mobile suits fighting at Simon Fraser University. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, and I, I also, I like the narrator a lot in, uh, the, oh, yeah. the dub of Gundam Wing. I mean, he's no oh. Doc, he's no Doc Harris, but, uh, Campbell Lane, uh, does a good job, even though he, one, one thing that always bugs me, has always bugged me about, about the narrator is that he, he keeps saying however, 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 
when he's uh, stringing together exposition. But um, it's, it's actually not just him doing it. Uh, whenever any character is doing any kind of uh, exposition or narration, uh, they keep saying, however, 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 it's a bad script writing. But um, he's a good voice for the, for the, for the narration, for sure. Uh, so, Pan, you had some stories about uh, the voice actors at, at conventions, too, didn't you? Yeah, I do. I have a couple. Um, one thing to note, it was like this huge thing. Anime North 2003 did its best to hire, sorry, to bring in every Gundam Wing voice actor they could. Uh, they actually flew Hikaru Midorikawa, who plays Hiro, uh, from Japan to Toronto. And they had the voices of all all the pilots except for Wu Face. Ted Cole did not come, but everyone else came. Um, and we also had the voice of Trez and the voice of, uh, like, Zex. So it was like this huge Gundam Wing fest. And the other thing that's important there here is that YTV helped sponsor the con that year. So there was a huge YTV presence, and they were... I don't remember exactly, but it was almost like the voice actors for Gundam Wing were promoting the show in a very official capacity. There were official interviews with them to promote the show. There was, They were involved in parts of the con to promote the show. It was a very much of a um, Gundam Wing is this huge thing. Let's do as much almost press as we can at and this to, convention. To clarify, this was a few years after Gundam Wing had already kind of come yeah, and like, on the, on so the network. Like, yeah, absolutely. So it was kind yeah. of odd in that way but like i, mean, I, I think what might have happened is, it sounds like they may, may have been like probing and trying to to prepare for the launch of like inuyasha and bionics uh who knows later. but they yeah they definitely had a huge interest in anime i mean they had me uh they interviewed me at the convention around cosplay oh, and, I remember uh, that, yeah. <laughs> and stuff like that right like they were definitely trying to 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 get in on this anime thing and that's why they were at the convention at all but i mean like the convention itself realized how popular Gundam Wing was, and that's why they brought in all these voice actors, and it was super fun. They were running around. Um, some of them, like, for some, a lot of them, it was like their first convention, uh, and some of them, like, like absolutely loved it, loved every moment. I'm thinking of like Scott McNeil and other voice actors, like Mark Hildreth, who plays uh, Hero. He was sort of out of his element. Like, he was super uncomfortable. He was like, oh. Okay, there's all these people here taking pictures of me. I don't know how I feel about this. He was a little bit overwhelmed. Um, uh, and I don't know how many conventions he's done since. Uh, we might have scared him away. But it was really cool because we had this, it was almost palatable, the excitement about that show, uh, about Gundam Wing. And it, that was reflected in the choice of guests. Uh, and, you know, they, those same voice actors, those ocean group voice actors were invited to a bunch of conventions, as you said, like all over the United States, all over Canada. There was a really cool experience that happened at Anime Evolution 2004, I believe. Um, and the thing with Anime Evolution is that, like, these voice actors are from Vancouver. The convention is in Vancouver. The convention was at Simon Fraser University at the time. They, they just kind of popped by unexpected a lot of the time. yeah yeah and it was one of those moments and there was a fan i remember there's a huge kirby morrow he plays troa in the show kirby morrow super fan who i believe like one of her uh ways that she got to know him and like him so much was through gundam wing if i'm not mistaken and she had flown from england to come to this convention to see she knew kirby wasn't going to be there but to see the other voice actors to see scott mcneil and the dobson brothers and you know whoever else was there and um, I remember uh, another one of the voice actors, Michael Dobson, realized that she was, you know, this Kirby Morrow super fan. So she called. So sorry. He called up Kirby 
uh, around, I think it was around, like, dinner time, and Kirby drove up, like, the mountain to Simon Fraser University <laughs> in this sports car um, at, like, midnight. And I remember it was super foggy, and he got lost. He was like, "There was why is there more than one lot B? Where am I?" And and he showed up just to spend time with this this fan. Um, and he took pictures with her. It was really nice to her. Like they, it was it was really amazing. And like the a lot of these voice actors like genuinely loved meeting their fans, and you know to this day they still do. Uh, and, and being part of it. But like Gundam Wing, you know, in the convention scene had this. I don't even know how to put it, but had this like amazing excitement around it. There was this, 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 this fun around it. Um, and the voice actors were definitely a huge part of that because they were so kind, um, and so patient and, uh, and they, they were wonderful with their fans as well. So yeah, like, I mean, and that's just a cool example because we happen to be in Vancouver and they, these guys were all friends. So like, Oh, Hey, Hey Kirby, you want to like drive up here? It's like midnight. It might be fun, and he showed up, right? So it was great. Um, yeah, it was definitely great. Yeah, the, those guys were all—they were always at the early years of Anime Evolution. Uh, I think the con actually made the mistake of of letting giving them access to an open bar one time. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I can, I, I, yeah, I can picture how that might go. <laughs> so I was gonna say, I think it's, it, but it definitely speaks to the 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 love of Gundam Wing and the love of the pilots. And the love of these voice actors who were like a connection to these pilots. Um, so it, it, that these these voice actors were as popular as they were, uh, not just for their other works, um, but specifically for Gundam Wing, speaks to the way that the show resonated with so many people. Yeah, it, it just, just raised the, the profile of their work so much. Absolutely. Uh, in a way that we, just see, we still see today at cons. So. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning into part one of the Gundam Wing Retrospective on Zonan Canada. You can reach me on Twitter at Zonan Canada or email ZonanCanada at gmail.com. The theme song is by Ultra Kleistron and can be found on his album Packet Flood, which you can find at ultraclystron.com. Next on part two of our Gundam Wing Retrospective, the podcast that killed your adolescence. shows with tons of explosions and storylines that will totally confuse the adults? Well, this is the show for you! Gundam Wing, new time starting November 6th at 10.30. <laughs> I like it.